Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Jake Tapper. This is CNN Tonight, live from Lviv, Ukraine. At the beginning of yet another ominous week, Putin's army can be seen readying for a major new offensive in the east of this country. And tonight, those forces have a new commander, one specifically known for his cruelty with a history of targeting civilians. He's known as the butcher of Syria. As brutal as Russian attacks on civilians in Ukraine have been already replete with atrocities and slaughtered women and children, the fear is now that the worst could be yet to come here. Also, it bears noting that if that you don't change a commander if you're winning a war. So there's a real fear this invasion could turn even more brutal than what we've already seen. Here was the Pentagon today on that eight-mile-long Russian convoy believed to be headed for the Donbass region. Another convoy of vehicles that are uh, heading south uh, towards that town of Isium. Uh, we believe that these are, these are the early stages of uh, a reinforcement effort by the Russians in the Donbass. CNN has geolocated this new video that shows this large column of Russian military vehicles inside Russia, not far from the eastern border of Ukraine. Vehicles are seen facing northwest in the direction of Donbass. There is also new tape tonight of an alleged Ukrainian strike, Ukrainian strike on a Russian weapons depot in the Luhansk region of Donbass. Ukrainian officials claim that they destroyed an ammunition warehouse there, and you can see burned out shells and rockets scattered all over the ground. Meanwhile, weeks of relentless bombardment in the southern port city of Mariupol have left tens of thousands dead, according to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. This is new drone video that shows the theater, as you may recall, where hundreds were killed last month in Mariupol while seeking shelter, many of them women and children. 183 children have reportedly been killed so far in this invasion, with hundreds more Wounded, according to new numbers released today, those numbers do not take into account many parts of Ukraine. We're also learning that nine volunteer drivers working to evacuate those stranded in Mariupol remain missing after being detained by the Russian military. The head of the Ukrainian organization Help People says 10 of his drivers were trying to get civilians out of the besieged city of Mariupol when Russian soldiers stopped their vehicles, demanded that the evacuees be driven in those very same minibuses into Russia. The drivers refused. They were detained. The head of the group lost contact with nine of the 10 drivers. One was released. We should note CNN cannot independently verify the whereabouts of the drivers or the conditions under which they're being held. So tonight, the question, are we entering an even uglier, bloodier stage of this war? And is there more that the West could be doing to help Ukraine? State Department spokesman Ned Price will join us in a moment. But first, to the capital of Kiev, where CNN's Fred Plykin takes us through 
what he himself witnessed northwest of the Capitol today. Fred? Hi there, Jake. Yeah, and one of the main things that really stood out is that the destruction from Russia's offensive to try and take the capital, Kiev, which of course was one that was ill-fated and beaten back by the Ukrainians, that that caused a lot more damage than really anybody would have thought. And I think, you know, one thing that really struck us as we went through village after village that was almost completely destroyed is that there's so many people out there who are absolutely traumatized by the brutality of the occupation that was there, and of course, also the fighting that they witnessed. At the same time, there are still a lot of dead bodies that are being recovered in a lot of these places. And so we do have to warn our viewers that we're about to show you is very graphic and certainly disturbing. The tour is a sad routine for the body collectors in the outskirts of Kiev. Finding corpses has become eerily normal here. A house destroyed by an artillery strike, a body burned beyond recognition. A mangled car wreck, two bodies burned beyond recognition. A house that was occupied by Russian troops, an elderly lady dead in the bedroom. These bodies evidence of a brutal Russian occupation and then a fierce fight by the underdog Ukrainians to drive them out. A fight 81-year-old Katarina Bareshvolets witnessed up close in her village. There were explosions, explosions from all sides. It was scary, she tells me. I am in my house. I cross myself and lie down. And then I hear how it thundered and all the windows in the house were broken. The Ukrainians tell us the Russian troops didn't even bother collecting most of their own dead. More than a week after Vladimir Putin's army was pushed out of here, they showed us the body of what they say was a Russian soldier still laying in the woods. And that's not all they've left behind. This demining unit says they found hundreds of tons of unexploded ordnance in just a matter of days, including cluster munitions like this bomblet, even though the Russians deny using them. These weapons are extremely dangerous for civilians who might accidentally touch them, the commander says. There are about 50 such elements in one bomb, he says. This is a high-explosive fragmentation bomb to kill people, designed just to kill people. They blow up the cluster bomblet on the spot and then move the heavier bombs to a different location for a massive controlled explosion. The body collecting, the mine sweeping, and the clearing up of wreckage are just starting in this area. And yet this pile of demolished vehicles, both military and civilian, already towers in the Kiev suburb of Irpin. If you had to picture Russia's attempt to try and take the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, it would probably look a lot like this. Destruction on a massive scale and absolutely nothing to show for it. Russia's military was humiliated by the Ukrainians and caused a lot of harm in the process. And they've devastated scores of families. At Irpin Cemetery, the newly widowed weep at funerals for the fallen. Alla Krotkich, her husband Ihor, fought alongside their 21-year-old son in Irpin and died in his arms on the battlefield. Yulia Shkutina, wife of Dimitro Pasko, killed by a Russian mortar shell. And Tatyana Litkina, her husband Alexander, promised he'd come back in a few hours, but was killed defending this neighborhood. 
I'm very proud of him, Tatyana says. He's a hero. We have many people in Ukraine who have not fled and are defending their homes. Sasha died just 200 meters from our house where we lived. Laying the dead to rest, another sad task they've become all too efficient at performing in this area. Close by, the next funeral is already underway. And Jake, there are going to be a lot more funerals happening there and obviously in many other places also in the uh, towards the northwest uh, of Kiev in that very large swath of land that the Russians invaded. And there's certainly a lot of grief, a lot of anger among the population there. But I do also have to say there is a lot of resilience as well. One of the things that we've been witnessing here around the Kiev area is that many people who fled the uh, Ukrainian capital are already coming back and trying to breathe life into this area once again. There's a lot of traffic on the streets, a lot of traffic also at the checkpoints trying to get back into the city. Uh, some shops also reopened. And then one thing that really stood out to us today is there was a playground that we saw which had been abandoned the entire time that we were here for the first time today. We saw children playing there once again. Jake. Hmm. Fred Pletkin in Kiev, thank you so much. So what might this new phase of the war mean for attempts to end it diplomatically? I spoke earlier this evening with U.S. State Department spokesman Ned Price. There are reports this evening from Ukrainian military and government officials uh, that Russia has apparently used chemical weapons against Ukrainians in, in part of Mariupol. CNN cannot verify these reports at this time. Has the Biden administration confirmed this? If it's true, what does it mean? Well, like you, Jake, we haven't been in a position to confirm these reports just yet, but here's what I can tell you. Before today, there was credible information available to us that the Russians may have been preparing uh, to use agents, chemical agents, potentially tear gas mixed with other agents as part of an effort uh, to weaken, to incapacitate uh, the Ukrainian military and civilian elements that are entrenched in Mariupol, using these agents as part of an effort uh, to weaken those defenses. We shared that information with our Ukrainian partners. We are going to be in direct conversations with them to try and determine what exactly exactly uh, has transpired here. Uh, and as soon as we uh, gain additional fidelity, uh, we'll be in a better position to say what this was or, or what this may have been. Ukraine says that the Russian offensive in the east, in the Donbass region, has already begun. And they say it will not be long before those front lines are replenished with uh, more Russian troops and supplies, as evidenced by the eight-mile-long convoy of Russian vehicles that we've seen. Ukrainians are calling on the West, on the U.S. and NATO to step up with even more advanced offensive weaponry, not just missile defense systems, but offensive weaponry, fighter jets and more. Um, where is NATO? Where is the U.S. on that? Well, I can tell you, we met with uh, Foreign Minister Kuleba last week in Brussels. Uh, the Foreign Minister met with Secretary Blinken, met with our NATO allies uh, as well. And, sec and uh, Foreign Minister Kuleba came with three agenda items, as he put it, weapons, weapons, and weapons. And what he heard from Secretary Blinken was three answers, yes, yes, and yes. We are going to continue to surge weapons systems into Ukraine every single day between the United States and our allies and partners, some 30 allies and partners that are providing security assistance to the Ukrainians. There are deliveries being made every single day. And we're also providing 
uh, new systems uh, as a result of this constant coordination with our Ukrainian partners. You may have noticed on Friday, uh, our Slovakian allies were able to transfer an S-300 system. This is a long-range anti-aircraft system uh, that our Ukrainian partners had been asking for. What's important here is that our Slovakian allies were able to transfer this precisely because the United States was able to backfill their S-300 with a Patriot uh, missile defense system. Uh, Today, you'll have also heard that we're going to be in a position to provide our Ukrainian partners with artillery. Uh, This is also directly in response to the requests they have made uh, in recent days. So we're in constant coordination and consultation with them uh, to make sure that we are providing them with precisely what they need to take on this threat and precisely uh, the scale and scope that they need it. Over the course of this administration, we provided $2.4 billion worth of security assistance, $1.7 billion uh, in the past month alone. If you add in contributions from our allies and partners around the world, uh, there's a lot more than that. Ned, Ukraine's foreign minister Kuleba says it's extremely difficult to even think about negotiating with Russia after the atrocities seen in Bucha and other parts of the country, the attack on all the civilians at the Kramatorsk train station. How do you see the state of diplomacy right now? Is there any chance for a diplomatic solution, given the fact that the Russians seem to be very brazenly committing war crimes, if not genocide? Well, I'm sorry to say the diplomatic track doesn't seem to hold a whole lot of promise at the moment. Uh, I think to the foreign minister's point, you don't often negotiate with allies and close friends, uh, you negotiate with, in many cases, adversaries and competitors. And clearly, uh, what the Russians are doing here is brutalizing uh, the Ukrainian people, going after the Ukrainian state, uh, pursuing Ukraine's territorial uh, integrity. But our goal, and we know that the goal of our Ukrainian partners who are uh, remain engaged and uh, remain engaged in good faith uh, in diplomacy, is to bring an end to this senseless violence. We know that this war can only end with a diplomatic solution. That's why we're doing two things, really, to strengthen Ukraine's hand at the negotiating table. Number one, as I mentioned before, we're providing them with massive amounts of security assistance so that they can use their battlefield momentum as leverage uh, to make the point to the Russians that this is not a battle they can win militarily. And number two, uh, we are continuing to put a chokehold on Russia's economy, Russia's financial system, uh, to make it clear that this is not something that the Russian Federation or the Kremlin uh, can endure over the long haul. Our hope, together with our Ukrainian partners, is that these two crosswinds, what we're doing with our Ukrainian partners, what we're doing to uh, the Kremlin, will combine to make the Russians Mm -hmm. uh, deal seriously when it comes to diplomacy and negotiations. Well, you say that the only way this ends is with a diplomatic solution, um, but that's not true entirely, right? I mean, it could end with Russia being defeated or Ukraine being defeated. I mean, President Biden's calling for Putin to be tried for war crimes. He's not going to be facing any accountability or any venue for uh, the International Criminal Court or whatever, unless he's defeated, right? Well, Russia will be strategically defeated, and we've already laid the groundwork for that. If you look at the toll on the Russian economy, an economy that is forecast to contract by 15 percent, an economy where inflation is going to reach uh, 15 percent, an economy that is losing some 600 multinational uh, corporations, a country that is diplomatically isolated, a leader that is a pariah 
on the world stage. This will be a strategic defeat, however and whenever uh, this ends. But to your point about accountability, uh, there has to be accountability. The point is that the wheels of accountability do tend to grind slowly, especially when it comes to uh, war crimes. But we're doing a couple things right now. Uh, We have a team of American prosecutors, other experts on the ground in the region, helping in the effort uh, to collect to analyze, uh, to memorialize, and to share evidence of potential war crimes uh, with the relevant accountability mechanisms. And right now we're focused on working with Ukrainian Prosecutor General. She has a team uh, that is culling through this evidence, that is putting together a criminal case against those not only who may have perpetrated this on the ground, Mm -hmm. but every single person up the food chain. And if the evidence points to Vladimir Putin as a war criminal, and by all appearances, uh, it seems that it will, uh, we will pursue that accountability as well. U.S. State Department spokesman Ned Price, thanks for your time this evening. Thanks, Jake. Coming up, documenting evil as atrocities mount by the day in Ukraine. I spoke with the country's prosecutor general who's trying to build a case against Russia for potential future war crimes trials. Our team witnessed some of that investigation in action in a town outside Lviv. We'll show you that next. And we're back live in Lviv, Ukraine, where we continue to monitor the growing list of Russian atrocities, bombing a children's hospital, a train station massacre, mass graves in Bucha, other crimes so brutal we can't even show or describe them on air. 5,800 individual criminal cases have already been opened by the country's prosecutor general. I spoke with her earlier about what she's seeing. We see horrors of war, uh, a lot of war crimes. Uh, actually, it is not only war crimes. Now we can say about um, uh, a lot of crimes against humanity. Over the weekend, we met with prosecutors and witnesses who are making their cases against Russia. About 90 minutes outside Lviv. At this pink school, up the stairs, past the paw prints, in this grade school classroom, there's a war crimes investigation underway. Ukraine's prosecutor general's office has deployed teams of investigators to villages and shelters nationwide with a mission, build a case strong enough to punish Russia in international courts. Ukrainians who have fled their homes and are willing to testify are asked to give detailed accounts of the language, uniforms, timing, and actions of those who wronged them and destroyed their lives. The main idea of it is to officially set the status of these people as crime victims, for example, because they will get their right for compensation in the future. Irina Levenko was a chief ecological prosecutor in southeastern Ukraine before the invasion. But since March 28th, she's been collecting war stories from people sheltering in the West, even as her own village remains under Russian control. After I moved here to the relative safety in western Ukraine, I heard the call from the prosecutor general's office that this group would be created, so I went and joined. I didn't hesitate even for a second. 
Neither did Vasil Shevchuk, a witness from Bucha. It was important for me to tell, but also hard to tell. I'm still shaking. He's a longtime paramedic who says he helped the wounded back home. There were people watching the equipment moving along the street, and they were shot at. Two people were running into a cellar, and one of them was killed. Shevchuk, along with his family, sheltered at home for 10 days. Me, my son, and my brother were in the house, and my wife and my daughter were in the cellar. He says he had a pitchfork ready to defend his 13-year-old daughter and 25-year-old son. If they came into my house, I would use the pitchfork to kill them. If I got killed, it would be easier. I don't need to see my dearest suffering from the Russians. His friend in a neighboring village was not as lucky. She called me on the 26th or 27th of February. She has a mentally ill disabled son who went out on the street to look at the tanks and machines and they just shot him dead. How many people died and who knows how many will die? 63-year-old Natalia is a retiree from Kharkiv who testified today about the brutality she witnessed by Russian soldiers. I can't say a good word about these people. I can't even call them people. Maybe they have no brains at all. I don't know what they're thinking and how their mothers are bringing them up and giving meat to this war. She says she sheltered in her basement for six days. The windows have been blown out of her house and her sister is dead. She had a heart attack in the cellar where she was hiding because of the big stress. Still, Natalia is not sure her story or any reparation for it means much. How can they be punished? I don't think that they will be punished severely. Only God can punish them. What they have done, it cannot be repaid by any money. By now, most have seen horrific images of war crimes on CNN and other news outlets. But there is much more too horrifying to show, and much more news media have not seen that is being added into evidence. With a click, witnesses can upload videos and photos to this website created by the Prosecutor General's Office of Ukraine. The interviews, however, are done in person. People often cry during their questionings and so on, and it is much easier for the person who is in the same room to connect to the people being questioned and to find a better line of investigation. The sad truth? This part of the world has a lot of experience when it comes to such prosecutions. Lviv University, in fact, is the alma mater of the two lawyers who came up with the legal concepts of prosecutions at Nuremberg for genocide and for crimes against humanity. In fact, one of those former law students here, Hirsch Lauterpacht, was working with the Allied powers in 1942, preparing for those prosecutions. At the same time, members of his family here in Lviv were being rounded up and killed because they were Jewish. Those ideas and laws hammered out between U.S., British, and Soviet powers to go after Nazi crimes will now be used to go after the grandchildren of those Soviets. I call Russians cockroaches now, and I want to destroy these cockroaches. I want to crush them forever. Vasil says he would join the military if he could. I would fight, but my eyesight is minus nine. I wouldn't see. Instead, he's giving the court a clearer view of what the Russians have done. Yes, I can't help any other way. Is this invasion, is this war about to get even worse with the new Russian commander who is notoriously ruthless in charge? What might this looming offensive in Donbass look like? We're going to be back with one of our top military analysts 
next. Continuing now live from Lviv, Russia's appointment of a new general to oversee its military operations in Ukraine is widely seen as a sign that this war could be entering an even bloodier phase. After all, Alexander Dvornikov, also known as the Butcher of Syria, has a track record of brutality. He led Russia's ruthless bombing campaign in Syria from 2015 to 2016, one that flattened cities like Aleppo, killing thousands of civilians, displacing millions more from their homes. And now amid Russia's bid to take over eastern Ukraine, the Pentagon warns that Putin's generals may feel pressured to deliver results, no matter what the cost. I think, sadly, uh, we can all expect that that's those same brutal tactics, that same disregard uh, for civilian life and civilian infrastructure um, will, will probably continue as they now focus uh, in a more geographically confined area in the Donbass. Joining us now, retired Brigadier General Mark Kimmett. Uh, General Kimmett, good to see you as always. When I spoke with Jake Sullivan, the White House National Security Advisor yesterday, uh, he essentially downplayed Russia's overall chances of success just because this new general was going to be running the show. He, and he, he noted that Russia had already suffered strategic failure and already been scorching the earth. I wonder how you see it, this, this, considering what we know about this general and his, in the past at least, complete disregard for Syrian civilian lives. No, I think you're right, Jake. This guy is going to bring in far more brutal tactics than we've seen up to this point. If, in fact, he was the one that ordered the attack on the railway station at Kramatorsk, uh, in my mind, that's just preview of coming attractions. Uh, he's got a good mind. He, he has a different tactical view than Grozmov and the other leaders in Moscow have had. I think he was not picked to execute the same plan that uh, they've been playing out for the last couple of weeks. No doubt he's told Putin he's got a different plan. Uh, they're on a smaller area inside the Donbass, so it'll be interesting to see what course of action he chooses uh, to show some success before Victory Day on, March, on May 9th. A Pentagon official, a senior Pentagon official, has said that fighting in the Donbass between the Ukrainians and the Russians will be like a, a knife fight because both sides will be familiar with the terrain, which is a more rural and open area. Um, how do battle tactics change in a place like the Donbass? Yeah, first of all, Jake, I think we've got to recognize that they've been fighting there for the last eight years. So that's a pretty torn up area as it currently stands. They're all dug in. So the knife fight analogy is correct, but I don't think we're going to see this uh, straight attack to the West that people are projecting. If you take a look at that map you've got up there, uh, standard Russian tactics, classic Russian tactics, would have them attacking from the North and South behind the Ukrainian lines to try to envelop them, as we call that, that tactic, sort of isolate them and then reduce them. I don't think they're going to come due west. Uh, they don't have enough troops, um, and that's not a very much of a finesse play, and I don't think that he would have recommended that. There's this new video this evening purporting to show the aftermath of a Ukrainian strike on a Russian weapons depot in the Donbass. Uh, 
Is that significant, do you think? I, I really do, because uh, when you start to concentrate your forces the way the Russians are trying to do now, that means they've got to bring up huge amount of logistics on a very few lines of communication, lines of resupply. So while that gives the Russians significantly more ammunition, supplies, uh, fuel and water, that has to be put in huge consolidated dumps. And those are wonderful targets for the Ukrainians to aim for. And if they're going to stop any type of major offensive, it's not going to be at the nose against the opposing forces. It's going to be by going against their knees and their Achilles heel, which is their logistics. We know the U.S. has been sharing intelligence with Ukraine for quite some time. Satellite images and video also give away Russia's positioning, and what they're bringing to the fight. I mean, you can't really hide an eight-mile convoy. What should the Ukrainians be doing to back up their forces, do you think? Well, I think they ought to be using that uh, intelligence to find those rocket, missile, and artillery battalions because the Russians love to use artillery. Uh, they use 9,000 cannons in a 35-mile stretch uh, to get it to blow their way into Berlin, and they love to blow their way through front lines and around the envelopments. Uh, so the short answer is use that intelligence to find those missile, rocket, and uh, uh, artillery positions, take them out, and that will probably be, along with the logistics, the second most important target that they can, they can attack. Thank you so much, Brigadier General Mark Kimmett. Always good to see you. Appreciate your insights this evening. Coming up, he escaped the horror of Bucha, but he refuses to leave Ukraine. And even in the ugliness of this war, he is trying to bring some beauty to his family. Oh, yesterday, I was such an easy game to play. He'll join us live next. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Mm-hmm. Welcome back to Lviv. Today, a fresh reminder of the heartbreaking costs of war through the eyes of a nine year old boy who wrote this letter to his mother. Ukraine's ambassador read the letter during a U.N. Security Council meeting, um, and it says in part, Mama, this letter is my gift to you on the Women's Day on the 8th of March. Thank you for the best nine years of my life. Many thanks for my childhood. You are the best mama in the world. I will never forget you. I wish you good luck in the heavens. I wish you to get to paradise. I will try to behave well to get to paradise too. That little boy's mother was killed by Russian soldiers while trying to escape by car. And the boy was left alone in the vehicle until he was rescued and taken to a shelter. I want to talk to another parent here on the ground. Alex Daraberkov was able, thankfully, to escape the horrific scenes we're seeing from Bucha and Irpin with his wife and his two-month-old son. He's currently living in Cherkasy, 
where he is actively using social media to try to get the message out about the atrocities that he is witnessing. And Alex joins me now. Uh, Alex, first, we are so glad that you're well. How are you? How is your wife? How is your two-month-old son who was born just two weeks before the war began? How are you all doing? Thank you. We are a lot better than a lot of other people in the east of Ukraine, especially in Mariupol. Well, we, we consider ourselves in a paradise as compared to them. Talk to me about your escape from Bucha and the European and why you've been documenting, documenting the atrocities that you've witnessed along the way. Uh, well, um, I first heard about uh, my neighbor uh, on this third week of, of the war who was trying to evacuate his family and he was uh, shot dead in his car. I couldn't sleep at night. I was so shocked. But then the next day I heard about another case, about uh, a dozen of neighbors at their attempt to evacuate and uh, six of them were killed. And then another day I heard about another case. And so every day I would hear new and new cases in Erpinian Bucha. And so I started to document those cases uh, and then talk to um, international lawyers to independently investigate those cases. And just to be clear, because I just want people at home to understand, these are not soldier friends of yours. These are moms and dads, regular citizens, just being killed in cold blood. Absolutely. Those are civilians, the neighbors I lived with for years. And they were just trying to evacuate uh, with white, uh, you know, uh, clothes on their cars and the science children on them. You've been documenting life living inside a war zone, including that very touching moment where you sang Yesterday by the Beatles to your little baby boy um, who was just born just two weeks before the war. I she. Had to go, I don't know, she wouldn't say. I said something wrong. What does that song, what does that moment mean to you? What are you going to tell your boy about this moment in time when he sees these videos in years to come? You know, this is not like a lullaby to him. And I started singing it to him before the war. But now, when the war started, I started to realize that the, the, this song is actually about the current situation. There is a shadow hanging over me. I'm not half the man I used to be. Those are the words that struck me like, this is a totally different life. And I hope that his life, his tomorrow and our tomorrow is different. And um, when he thinks about the yesterday, we were just today now, he, he realizes that we paid a lot for the freedom that he will have in the future. I don't know if you saw, but John Lennon's son did a version of Imagine uh, that is on social media. Have you seen it? Yes, it was so fantastic. And uh, I, I thank him a lot for, for doing that. 
You've said this is a massacre of your entire nation. How concerning is it that the Russian people don't see it that way? I understand you've stopped communicating with some of your relatives in Russia. Have they seen the images that you've been posting? I actually sent to them directly some images and videos and photos of what I see around me, starting from day one when the military airplanes were flying over my apartment buildings. And then they actually said they didn't believe it because they thought it was fake. Alex Daraberkov, stay in touch with us, please. We want to have you back. A real honor talking to you tonight. Thank you, sir. Coming up, they're not Ukrainian, and they don't even live in Ukraine. But families such as this one are scared they could be next on Putin's list of civilian targets because some of them have seen what Russia did to their homeland before. We're going to take you to Tbilisi, Georgia. That's next. Welcome back. We're live in western Ukraine as Russia's bloody war on Ukraine drags on. People living not so far away in the Republic of Georgia, another former Soviet Republic, they wonder what happens if they become Putin's next target again. Some of them spoke to CNN's Matt Rivers. Gia was born in Georgia. He just didn't think he'd be back here quite yet. His family moved to Russia 30 years ago, fleeing the Georgian Civil War. It was in Moscow they built a life, where he met his wife Anya and where his kids were born. He's told them the truth about the horrors of the current war in Ukraine and says he worried what would happen if one of their teachers in Russia echoed Putin's propaganda that this war is just. He knows what's really going. And he will say, no, you are not right. And it could be problems for him. You were worried that your son would have yes. problems. Yes. Wow. So the family left for Georgia just a few days after the war began. Though Anya isn't completely convinced that they will be safe here either. If no one stops Putin, she says, he can easily go both to Georgia and to the West. And she is not alone in her fears. Georgians have a long, brutal history with Russia. Russian troops invaded in 2008, and thousands of troops remain in two breakaway provinces of Georgia. And in 1989, in the capital of Tbilisi, nearly two dozen protesters were killed and hundreds were injured by Soviet troops as they advocated for independence. People gathered over the weekend outside the parliament building in Tbilisi to mark the anniversary of that massacre. Georgian flags this year joined by those from Ukraine for what's now called National Unity Day. It's a big day each year in Georgia, but this year it's made even more important given what we're seeing Russian troops do in Ukraine. Decades of Russian aggression here have left deep scars, and many now see parallels between Putin's invasion of Ukraine and what they fear could happen in Georgia. Russia posed a deadly threat for Georgian independence, for our sovereignty, for our territorial integrity. Do you think that there's a chance that Russia could invade Georgia again? Yes, this threat is always. Every country across Europe, not only Georgia, is under threat. Back in their apartment, Gia and his family wholeheartedly agree. They told us they don't want their children and grandchildren to grow up in what they call North Korea 2.0. And for that, 
Grandmother Galina says people must understand a crucial point. She says the whole world must understand that Ukraine is now really not fighting just for itself. It's fighting for everyone. And the whole world must unite and stop Putin because he won't stop with Ukraine. And the family told us that before they left Moscow, in the beginning days of the war, they were talking to some of their friends in Moscow, and they said that they were shocked to hear from people they considered themselves close to that they were repeating the lines of Russian propaganda, that the Ukrainian government was fascist, that they were drug addicts, as we so often hear from Russian state media, and that, the family tells us, played a role in their decision to leave. Jake? Matt Rivers in Tbilisi, Georgia. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. Thank you for watching. I'll be back again tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Eastern for CNN Tonight, live from Lviv. I will see you tomorrow afternoon on The Lead, which begins at 4 p.m. Eastern. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.